You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The Rise and Fall of Nations, predicted in the Bible. Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphian Video. Babylon, one of the earliest empires which could be called a world empire. It was remarkable and is marked by amazing building projects. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a great impressive statue. The great statue was divided into four parts and displays the progression of the empires throughout history. The accuracy of this prophecy is remarkable. Some people claim that dreams can have deeper meanings. Others claim that dreams can tell us about the future. And sometimes our dreams can be so intense and real that we wake up and we actually think we're experiencing what we've experienced in our dream. And when in reality we only dreamt it. Well, God at times has used dreams and visions. He's used them to divinely inspire and to speak to his prophets. And these dreams are so real for these prophets that it was as if they were standing and watching the actual events unfold before their very eyes. It was as if they saw it happening right before them. Now, the prophet Daniel, who lived approximately in 620 BC, this was some 250,000 years ago, wrote down the visions and dreams he had. And these were the dreams and the visions that God had revealed to him. And one of these incredible dreams was this one we're going to consider tonight. We want to consider this dream a little bit closer because it impacts the very age that we live in, the very time period that we are in today. And it also gives us clues about just how close we are to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, please turn with me, if you haven't already, up there to Daniel chapter 7. And the first thing we notice in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 2 is that these visions, this vision was at night. And it doesn't just mean that it was late at night or that it was dark. God often gives visions to his prophets during the day. But this time, God deliberately chose night time to reveal these visions to Daniel. And what God was symbolically telling us is that the events that we're about to read about in Daniel chapter 7 were going to happen during the time of a symbolic darkness. During the time of the darkness of the Gentile times. And in BC 620, the Jews were in captivity. They were in Babylon when this vision came to the prophet Daniel. So in other words, what Daniel was about to see would be a vision or a dream about the future of the world from the time of his day right down to the time when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth. And we're going to see some very interesting details that are revealed in this dream. Now, let's not let the details of the dream overwhelm us, because they can. And that's 
just because there's a lot of detail here. All you need to remember is that on a very basic level is we're going to see from this chapter that there are four successive kingdoms, four successive world empires that are going to be described. And if we lose you at any of the details, just remember four successive kingdoms and four successive empires are going to be described. And what is remarkable is just how accurate Bible prophecy is, that it can predict the rise of these future kingdoms hundreds of years before they come on the scene. And if the Bible is this accurate, friends, then it can be trusted to accomplish everything it says in this book. Well, in, De- in, in Daniel chapter 7, we see a description of four incredible beasts. And then we'll find the chapter is ending with the detailed description of the little horn. It's a little horn that is described as a dreadful and terrible horn. And that little horn is found on the head of the fourth beast in Daniel's dream. So what, is, so what does this all mean? Well, let's just have a quick overview, look at the quick overview of Daniel chapter 7, in which Daniel shares this remarkable dream he's given by God. And so very simply, verses 1 to 14, we have the dream described to us. And so everything that Daniel is going to dream about is recorded in the first 14 verses. He sees four beasts, first a lion, then a bear, then a leopard, then a beast, so terrifying that he struggles to describe it. And then in verses 15 to 16, we see Daniel has a question to the angels that is sharing the vision with him. He wants to know what's going on here. He wants to understand what this dream is all about. Verses 17 and 18, the angel gives him an answer. He explains to him in a little bit more detail about what he dreamt about. And then in verses 19 to 22, Daniel has a question about the fourth beast. That one really bothered him. And then in verses 23 to 27, the angel shares a second explanation with him. And he gives him a little bit more detail about the fourth beast that really bothered him. And we'll see why that is later on. And then finally, in verse 28, we see Daniel is really troubled because he has some great concerns about what he's just heard. And that's the outline to Daniel chapter 7. And so in verses 3 to 8, God is showing Daniel the the literal beasts. Um, But no, God is not talking about fantastical, literal beasts. He is using these beasts to symbolise something. He is using them to symbolise or to stand for something else. Throughout the Bible, God uses beasts to symbolise or stand for other things, like kings or kingdoms, or nations, for example. The Bible always interprets itself. And so with careful reading, we can get hints to what these beasts symbolise. For example, this is what we read in Ecclesiastes 3 verses 18. This is the words of King Solomon, who, by the way, the Bible refers to as a very wise man. He says, I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. 
Another Bible translation puts it this way. I, Solomon, said in my heart, with regards to the children of men, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. And that's how God views man, as a beast. So this is a really good verse to tuck away to show that when we're looking at these beasts that are described, that's how God views man. God views man just like beasts. And men can sometimes demonstrate characteristics of beasts. And so God sees the nations as beast-like. This is how God sees man, especially how God views the kingdoms of men and the kingdoms of this world. But there is another reason that we know that these beasts are descriptive of the kings or kingdoms. And that is because in Daniel 7, chapters, uh, Daniel 7 verses 16 and 17, it tells us that. So in Daniel chapter 16 it says, I, talking about Daniel, came near unto one of them that stood by, one of the angels, and asked him the truth of all this. And so he told me, and he made known the interpretation of the things. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. Each of these four kings represent a kingdom. And in verse 23 picks up that idea when it says, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth. So by using beasts to describe kings or nations associated with these kings, God is able to provide Daniel, as well as us, with a lot more information. And so in Daniel chapter 7, we're reading about a dream that a Jewish prophet Daniel had while he was in Babylon. But earlier in the book of Daniel, in chapter 2, about 50 years ago, before this time, there was another dream, another man had, and it wasn't Daniel. And that dream was had by a king. That king's name was King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It was a dream about a huge image, a statue of a man with a golden head, with a chest of silver, with a belly and thigh of bronze and legs of iron. And Daniel, call, and Daniel was called in by King Nebuchadnezzar to interpret the dream. And God gave Daniel the interpretation to that dream. The dream was also about four consecutive kingdoms, four consecutive empires. Uh, that would rule this earth. So are these two dreams related? Well, yes, they are. Hopefully, friends, you'll recall that there was a talk given last week about Daniel chapter 2. And this is one that we as Christadelphians do often as seminars. It's about the kingdom of men from Daniel chapter 2. It's about the kingdom of men from the days of the prophet Daniel, who lived, as we said, in approximately 620 B.C., all the way down to the days in which we live. And at the end of the dream from Daniel chapter 2, we see a stone cut out of the mountain. And that stone hits the feet of the image and destroys the image. And it destroys this kingdom of men. And reduces the image, or the kingdom of men, to powder. And the stone that fills the whole earth represents God's kingdom, with Jesus Christ as the king. So God's kingdom is then established in place of the previous kingdom of men, which that whole image represents. 
Now again, one of the beautiful features of the Bible is that with careful reading of God's word, it will interpret itself. And many times it interprets itself. But to let the Bible interpret itself, it means we will be going to many different passages tonight. Now when we come to Daniel's dream in chapter 7, it is the same as the image of Daniel chapter 2. It is just more fully developed. And using four beasts that correspond to the four precious metals, God is able to reveal more details about these particular elements. These metals, these kingdoms in Nebuchadnezzar's dream of chapter 2 remind us that man sees himself as a handsome and all-round wonderful person. And so the image, in, image, the image of Daniel chapter 2 is how man sees the kingdom of men. He sees it as magnificent, majestic, precious, wealthy, strong and important. But in Daniel chapter 7 shows us how God sees the same kingdom of men. He sees these empires like beasts that we see on the right of the slide. So through these wonderful symbols, God is able to get us more information across to both us and Daniel. And it is emphasised that Nebuchadnezzar saw the image or literally had a vision of Daniel seven times in Daniel chapter 2. And the same word is used here in Daniel chapter 7 of how Daniel saw or had a vision of the four beasts nine times in this chapter. And these are both very vivid and detailed visions. And there's a lot of similar verbs as well as similar similarity of the general outlay between the four kingdoms. And the intention of Daniel 2 image is to show how God has set up or raised up kings. And the same word is used for both the lion and the bear that are set up or raised up in Daniel 7 verses 4 and 5. But all four beasts, as it says in Daniel 17, are four, king, uh, four kings or four kingdoms that shall be raised out of the earth. So both visions in Daniel 2 and Daniel chapter 7 present God as a supreme sovereign over the entire world. He, is not only, he not only ruled over men during the time of Nebuchadnezzar, but he will also judge the empires that follow. And the end result is that all the worldly kingdoms will be destroyed and replaced by God's eternal kingdom. So the vision of Daniel starts in chapter 2 with the four winds of heaven that strove upon the great sea. And in Jeremiah 11 verses, uh, 11 verses uh, sorry, Jeremiah 4 verse 11 and 13 tells us that one of these things, tells, sorry, tells that one of these things, that the wind in the Bible is symbolic of an army on the march. And of the fact that there were four winds is symbolic of all over the earth. So Jeremiah 4 verses 11 to 13 says, At that time it shall be said that this people and to Jerusalem a dry wind of the high places in the wilderness shall come toward the daughter of my people, not to fan nor to cleanse, 
Even a full wind from those places shall come up unto me. Now also I will give sentence against them. Behold, he, the leader of this army, shall come up as clouds, and his chariot shall be as a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe unto us, for we are spoiled or ruined. So this army comes upon Jerusalem, and it is described as a dry wind or a full wind, a whirlwind. So a wind can symbolise, it can be symbolic for an army. And now this wind is stirred up by the sea. And what does a sea represent in the Bible? Well, a sea stands for people. It stands for nations. And Isaiah 57 verse 20 tells us that. But the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters are cast up myrrh and dirt. And in Revelation 17 verse 15 backs it up when it says, The waters are people and multitudes and nations and tongues. Well, let's have a look at these four beasts in turn. And the first of which is found in Daniel chapter 4. Let's read Daniel chapter 4. The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. I beheld it till the wings therefore were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth, and made to stand upon its feet as a man, and a man's heart was given unto it. This lion has eagle's wings, and the eagle's wings are plucked off it, and it stands upright. And it's a great description of the Assyrian Babylonian Empire, known as the Chaldean Empire. And how do we know the lion represents the Assyrian Babylonian Empire? Well, again, we're going to let the Bible interpret itself. If you're looking for some cross-references to put beside Daniel chapter 7 verse 4, there are two really good cross-references in the book of Jeremiah. The first of which is in Jeremiah 4 verse 7, and the second is in Jeremiah 50 verse 17. It says here in Jeremiah 4 verse 7, and I'm going to read this from the RSV, A lion has gone up from the thicket, a destroyer of nations. He is on his way, he has gone forth from his place, and maketh thy land desolate that thy city shall be laid waste without the habitation. This lion is going to destroy nations and cities. He's going to make the land desolate. And a real lion can't do that, but a symbolic lion can. But what's Jeremiah describing? Well, he's describing the Babylonians coming to fight against both the Jewish nation and other nations as well. The Babylonians have marched from their country with the intent of conquering other nations. They were going to make other nations desolate and waste. Cities were going to be laid waste with no one left in them. And so Jeremiah using the language of the lion to describe the impending invasion of the Babylonians. Just look at this one as, as well. Jeremiah, this one now is Jeremiah 50 verse 17. 
This one ties together the Assyrians and Babylonian Empire. Israel is a scattered sheep. The lions, plural, have driven him away. First the king of Assyria hath driven him. And last this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon hath broken his bones. The Bible interprets itself. Before the Babylonians, there were a cruel Assyrians. The Babylonians eventually grew out of the Assyrian Empire, as we'll see. They are closely related. The ancient Assyrians and Babylonians believed in the same gods. They had a similar culture and customs, and even spake the same language. And the lion is considered king of the beasts, answering to the gold of the image in, in Daniel chapter 2, which was the most precious metal. But it was not just a lion. This lion had eagle's wings. So why does the lion have wings? Well, eagle's wings are known for having a huge wingspan. And this symbolised the widespread, extensive territory of the Assyrians. It, ex it symbolised the expanse of its empire, which incorporated most of the then-known world. And histori histori historically, there have been many statues of winged lions that have been unearthed from the time of the Assyrian-Babylonian Empire. But then it says the wings were plucked off, this lion. Rotherham's version says the wings were torn out. Well, suddenly the Assyrians had no more power to extend its borders. They became motionless. A well-known Christadelphian named Dr John Thomas wrote nearly 200 years ago, the deity that is God, punished Assyria for scattering Israel by transferring the dominion over the Nemeronian Empire to the Nineveh, to, from Nineveh to Babylon. So the plucking off of the wings is talking about how the kingdom would change. As the Assyrian administration weakened, the provinces started to revolt against the dominion of Nineveh. And in Babylon, Napoleon, the father of Nebuchadnezzar, grasped power. And he not only asserted his independence, but he ultimately dominated Nineveh. He replaced its power and its influence, its rule, and he transported the rulership from one place to another, and that is from Nineveh to Babylon. So no longer was the mighty Nineveh the capital of this great superpower of the world. Instead, Babylon was. So the lion power of Assyria now became the lion power of Babylon. Then in verse 4 it says that a man's heart was given to this Babylonian lion. What does that mean? What's the difference between the Assyrians and the Babylonians? Well, the Assyrians were a brutal people, the most brutal of all empires. They were known for skinning people alive, piling up heads and dragging people for miles from their eye sockets and their nose rings, along with many other brutal things. And in contrast, the Babylonians 
were more humany. They were more about making you a Babylonian than skinning you alive. They had more of a human heart than the Assyrians. Because the Assyrians were so vicious and cruel, they could not be worked with to further God's purpose. But Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, God could work with him. So because this Babylonian line was given a man's heart, it meant that God was able to work with Nebuchadnezzar to further his purpose. It still wasn't going to be easy to work through this king. Nebuchadnezzar suffered bouts of arrogance and pride, as most kings sadly do. But God knew that he could work through him, and he did. God was going to work with King Nebuchadnezzar for good. He caused Nebuchadnezzar to suffer for seven years of complete madness. At the end of those seven years, the Bible records the change of heart that this king had before God. He realised that God God in heaven was the one who oversaw the kingdoms of men. It is God who sets up kings and it is God who decides when it's time for the kings to step down. And so Nebuchadnezzar is reign as king of Babylon, reigned as king of Babylon for 43 years, from 604 BC to 561 BC. And after his death, Babylon continued to be a strong empire until 539, when it was conquered by the second rising beast power from Daniel's vision, the Medo-Persian Empire. The bear. Why did God choose to use the symbol of a bear to represent the Medo-Persian Empire? Well, next to the lion, the bear was the most feared animal in the Promised Land. The bear was not the most powerful or as courageous as a lion, but the bear was strong, it was cruel, and it was cunning and greedy. And it's an animal to be avoided, like it says in 2 Samuel 17 verse 8 and Hosea 13 verse 3. The bear was more greedy for its prey than the lion. The bear was going to extend its borders far beyond the Babylonian lion empire. And in Daniel 7 verse 5 it says, And behold, another beast, a second like a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between its teeth. And they, they said unto, they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. So there are three points here. One is that one side was more raised than the other. Two is that it had three ribs in its mouth, and three. And it was told to arise and devour much flesh. So what do these three points mean? Well, this bear was raised up on one side, or it was lopsided. Because even though the Medo-Persian Empire was made up of the Medes and Persians, the ruling government was not equally reflective of that. The Medes started off in government, 
Well, they didn't rule for very long. A couple of years later, once King Cyrus took over, the Persians controlled the, the government. And the Persians kept control of the government from then on until it came to an end. The three ribs in its mouth. They were the three powerful rival nations that contested the Medo-Persian Empire for power. The nation of Lydia, the nation of Babylon and the nation of Egypt. These three rival nations were all known for, for different things. The Lydians were very wealthy. The Babylonians were strong and known as a fortress city. And the Egyptians were known for their antiquity and culture. The thing is, if they had all united together, they would have defeated the Persian ruler Cyrus. But just as a bear is a very cunning animal, Cyrus was a very cunning man. Part of Cyrus's genius was his ability to, to divide and conquer. One by one he conquered these three powers until their bodies were bones in the teeth of the Medo-Persian bear. Firstly, he attacked Lydia in the Western Asia. And in a remarkable circumstance, this powerful and wealthy empire was brought under his control. Then he turned to Babylon, the most powerful of all the ancient fortress cities. And how did he conquer them? Well, he came up with a very clever and cunning plan. The Babylonians thought they, there was no way that an enemy could get into their city. It was impossible. But they had a river that ran right through the city. They had everything they needed to stop an army getting in. But they hadn't thought about Cyrus. And Cyrus came up with a plan to change and divert the, river, the course of the river Euphrates that ran underneath the city gates. And he waited until the Babylonians were busy feasting, so they weren't watching as they should have been. And then he channeled the water from away from the city gates, and his troops then climbed under the gates and marched along the dry riverbeds and took Babylon. This really showed his ingeniousness and his genialship. He was clever, a clever and cunning man. The great Babylonian empire was overthrown. And finally Egypt also. And the Medo-Persian empire now dominated the whole civilised world. But the Medo-Persians were also known for their outstanding administration skills. And there were three provinces or three imperial presidents positions that were set up to oversee all the administration of all the provinces. So even though, they even though eventually the Medo-Persians ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, all this was overseen by three presidential positions. They were very organised and structured as an empire. And the third phrase, arise and devour much flesh, talks about the Persian conquest, conquest of their army. You see, the rulers who followed Cyrus extended the power and influence of the Medo-Persian Empire throughout the whole, all of the Middle East. They brought all these 
distant lands under their control. History testifies that Cyrus and his successors proved to be geniuses when it came to military and civil administration. The Persian army was made up of men from all the countries that they had conquered and it had become well organised, superbly trained fighting force. And because its warriors enjoyed many special privileges, all men out of all nations sought to serve the king's army and to be one of his warriors. But in that army was a very special group, and they were called the Immortals. They were an elite 10,000-man army, and they were the deadliest fighting force in all of Asia at that time. They were the creme de creme of Cyrus's military force. They were specially trained Medo-Persian troops and they were completely loyal to the reigning king. And they were highly skilled in all forms of warfare. They dressed in a special uniform and they were recognised as very elite of the Medo-Persians. There was always a a reservoir of reserves of men waiting to be selected to join the 10,000 immortals. And if one of those men would die in battle or from any other causes, he was instantly replaced. The 10,000 were called immortals because the number remained the same at all times, no matter what. This whole Persian army was outstandingly successful and conquered the then known world. Their success was partly because the Persians bought a postal type service linking the empires together. They had horses stationed at different points throughout the empire that operated like a relay system. This meant they could fast track communications. It was very smart and it was a very sophisticated operation. And both these two things enabled the Medo-Persians to rule over the world for 200 years. Because of this, the Medo-Persian Empire was able to arise and devour much flesh that the Babylonians could never achieve. And its influence extended from Greece across to India and as far south as Egypt. The Medo-Persian Empire lasted 208 years and then the Persian Empire finally came to an end. And a new beast arose out of the west at the appointed time. And that was, that's found in Daniel chapter 7 verse 6. tells us that the third beast had the third beast to arise. And it looked like a leopard. So now we have arrived at the leopard of Daniel chapter 7 verse 6. And it's speaking of the third empire. It's speaking of the Grecian empire. Because the Grecian empire overthrew the Medo-Persians in a series of battles. So why did God choose a leopard to represent the Grecian Empire? Well, the leopard is considered the most handsome of all the beasts. And Greece was considered the most cultured of all nations. The leopard was more adaptable and versatile. It had a greater range of of habitats that most of the other beasts of prey didn't. 
The leopard was found in the forests, in the deserts, in the swamplands, and in the mountains, in all types of terrain. The leopard was noted for its speed and its unexpectedness when it attacked, and it was very strong. And in Daniel chapter six, uh, Daniel chapter seven, verse six, it says, "After this, I looked, and there was." Another, like a leopard, which had its four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given unto it. So the leopard represents the Macedonian or Greek world empire. But as we see from this verse, it had wings and four heads. Well, the wings gave it its speed. It represented Alexander the Great. Who, wide, who had widespread conquests. Many say that Alexander the Great was the greatest general to ever live. He was undefeated in battle. He was never defeated. And the world was not ready for how quick Alexander was going to be. He ascended to the throne of, uh, of Macdo at the age of 20, and he killed off any rivals. And then Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.